difference. I wrote you, telling you of the Piwaka Waka at the kitchen door in January, telling me that death was on its way, but not quite here yet. My father passed on the 10th of March, after long and complicated years of illness. More complex still is that which exists between fathers and daughters. So today, I will read for you a Piwaka Waka at the kitchen door, and with an addendum, one last parting glass and then because that's what I like to do a poem or two so here we go this letter was going to be about avocados and what I learned watering trees that bear fruit on a series of long summer days at the orchard but a pee waka waka arrived at the kitchen door while I was writing this and I knew what message it was bringing even as I tweeted what does it mean The Piwaka Waka is a messenger of life and death. Hovering at the kitchen door, I knew death was coming close again. If the fantail had come inside directly, I would have believed it to be imminent, and her stare gave me pause to wonder if new life was also on the way. My father is dying, and with him, part of me. The differences in the death. As humans, we do an excellent job of making meaning and finding patterns in the smaller signs. How many of the Earth's serendipities do we choose to read as signs? Signs and meaning that become narrative by which we write our days. My father is now a man I know more by narrative than experience, despite the years we have spent together. For nearly 15 years he has wandered the doorstep of death. He was young when he had bypass surgery, the kind where they give you a 10-year warranty. But 10 years passed, and then 11, 12, 13... He has long passed the expiry date they gave, much to everyone's surprise. But while that internal watch hasn't stopped ticking, there have been heart attacks, H1N1, near amputation, adult diabetes, non-cancerous growths and cancerous ones. There have been many moments where death was imminent, and yet still, he remains alive. Miracles and mercies they have been until now, when I wonder if crossing the threshold earlier would have been true mercy. One of the narratives I can tell is my father's love of food and wine. I can construct a story of his French onion soup simmering slowly on the coal range in the kitchen of the house we grew up in, Homoana. The house still stands now, overlooking the windy sea that is the Monaco, but the kitchen no longer overlooks the garden and the coal range is no more. I remember grey and damp Saturday mornings in winter and the kitchen filling with the unmistakable smell of coal fire, onions and stock. I make three versions of a pumpkin soup, and one belongs to him. A dose of curry powder, cinnamon, and red wine in the pot. I remember him in a bright Pacifica print shirt, beside the barbecue on a Christmas day, teaching me how to cook steak perfectly. And I learned from him the wine aroma and flavour wheel. Full-bodied is how you would describe my father, full of tannins and fruit. But is it memory or story? I'm not sure that it matters now. My relationship with my father is complex, and simple, which is to say I have forgiven everything and found the good, the light and the beautiful amidst the pain. He was not a father who provided necessities for most of my growing years, casting a burden on my mother from whom he was divorced. But in accepting who he is, there is simplicity in finding some good to make something new from. In the long years that I have made his soup recipes, my father has often been a silent presence in my kitchen stories. I might describe the character of my kitchen as consistent, always open and plentiful. My father's kitchen has been indulgent and out of reach. 
I have listened to him describe slow-cooked short rib they had feasted on but never tasted it. And his wine cellar was really empty but our Sunday suppers were frequently baked beans on toast and occasionally we ordered drive through McDonald's. On those Sundays, I felt a knot of anxiety in my stomach, praying my sisters wouldn't order something too extravagant or expensive. Dad was in or out of work too often to know whether it was safe to ask for what we really wanted. There is a narrative in which I find myself stuck in the disparity of these moments, but I have learned there is no accounting that makes a sensible bottom line of what parenting and love looks like. Perhaps parenting is amoral and simply the outcome you get when you do the best you can with what you have. And in those small moments of extravagance and poverty, my father did the best he could and parental love cannot be reduced to mere provision. What I know now is how frequently my kitchen is full of simple three ingredient meals and equally how I enjoy indulgence on behalf of those I love. I've learned the role they both play in a kitchen that knows how to make food taste like love. After all this time, I am surprised at the paradox of his cancer. My father has been an enthusiastic and gregarious Epicurean for my entire life, and this cancer is starving him of all he used to indulge in joyfully. Esophageal cancer is a bitter curse and should be avoided if any of us knew how to do such a thing. He has lost his ability to savour and swallowing has moved beyond difficulty to near impossibility. At least that is what we are told, as COVID restrictions mean we are not able to visit the hospital in which he lies currently. He is dying, but not right away. The full-bodied nature of his physical form is wasting away, recognisable to those of us who have seen cancer do its work close up. Cancer is like that, consuming you from the inside out, voracious and yet glacial. Suffering is drawn out in slow suffocation and starvation. It is not hard to ponder mercy. In adulthood, I have learned to see where he has been generous with utterances of belief and philosophies that have shaped my humanity and my work. You have more creativity in your little finger than the rest of them. You can figure it out. If you have to do something tough and you feel bad about it, it's probably because it's the right thing to do and you care about the person. So do the tough thing, but in a way they know you care about them. I often think about these lessons in parallel. They are a reference point for my humanity. Have I become too tough or bitter or lacking compassion? Have I forgotten what second, third and fourth chances meant to my father? Years ago I wrote down the lessons from my father. I had spent another short season circling at the foot of his potential deathbed and I realised I needed to make notes as his narrative turned towards one of sickness and hospital visits. I found myself hoping again for the relief of pain ending for him. Over the years, I have sometimes become so numb to the urgent calls and medical reports that I wondered if I had simply run out of love for him. Is it possible to love someone you are striving to be so other from? Still, for him I think coming close to death has been a way of staying alive. It's become part of how he lives, and because he is my father, I have lived there too. There is a narrative I could tell you about how I practice being calm and rational and fear being dramatic because I have already grown up being told I am just like him. Although it is selfish, I will be happy to bury that narrative in the ground with him when the time comes. The part of me that felt forever tied to him carrying the burden of his unfinished imperfect story can find some new freedom. And that is where our dying is different. The child in me tied to the image of him will make way for more of my own identity. And what in his life has been a shadow of failure, rejection and what not to be, Yet what I love of him in eternal and profound ways, his optimism, his love of people, his brave confidence to make any story ring true, absolutely true for those listening. These are good and brave things to be in the world. 
I have turned that love into action and conscripted the best of what he gave me into myself, lessons and soup recipes. And while we are dying together, the part of me tethered to him and him wholly, I can sense the new parts of me being born, unbound to that shadow. And for this, I feel gratitude and hope in a way that I might once have been afraid to describe out loud. It's grief I've run out of, not love. And grieving him alive and close to death for more years than I was counting, who he was and who he wasn't, his failures and shortcomings, a long litigious list of proclamations and accusations, I've come to the end of what can be mourned. I've observed even those lists are uncertain now, so many stories left to the fuzzy grey edges of memory. I haven't known my father in the mostly good and mostly bad way some daughters do. I have known a character as equally flawed as full of potential. An unrealized potential sometimes stings the most, but no one memory stands uncolored by the rest. But I have his meaning to hold on to. The story he has left me grows more true each day because I am the caretaker of it. I wish I had realized while adapting his soup recipes, I had permission to create new meaning from the ingredients he handed to me. And now my kitchen has married the indulgence of my father to the consistency I longed for and an open table, the kind I wanted him to invite us to. I make my ways of living suit the hospitality of my own character. I serve baked beans for supper, but I make them from scratch. And who knew that you could make beans taste like love? Through him, I learned that meaning is sometimes the most important, more true thing. And in this, he lives and lives again without fear of dying, even if the French onion soup was actually my mother's. And what I remember as nurture was, in fact, cooking under duress. Meaning is sometimes more important. Once upon a time, my father cared to feed us with slow-cooked love and to teach me a recipe. I could try to write a better story than redemption baked beans, but I do not need to. My peace and silence on the subject of redemption is how you know my forgiveness is complete. Nothing else needs to be said. Instead, there are only small redemptive actions that come as we are waiting for the final goodbye in that last withheld course of grief. I hope to find some space beside him to tell him again what I am grateful for, that all is forgiven and he will not be forgotten. It was always going to be my job to make redemption out of what comes next. So I stage a quiet little rebellion of feeding people I love, making meaning and memories out of everyday meals. I plan to learn to sail and to fish the things I wish my father taught me, and then turn that fresh catch into another memorable meal. I want to turn my meaning-making into memory, into the narrative people will tell of me, knowing that in part it will become his story too, and whether he is with us or departed, in winter I will make soup, and you might even eat it at my table with sourdough from Stanley the Starter. We'll pour wine and laugh till tears roll down our faces, and it will be meaningful because the recipe, though now mine, came from my father. It is good soup. It tastes like life, the sweet and savoury nature of it, the complexity of it, and you will know you are loved and I will know that you know it, and the redemptive work, it will be done. An Addendum Pour a glass, raise it, and afterward, collect the lessons your parents and your children are teaching you and add them to this collection. There was so much undone and unfinished in what I wanted my father to be, but there is also peace in that what he gave of himself to me has spun into good fruit. These are the lessons I referenced in the first essay. Too long we wait in life to realise 
the lessons we are learning from our parents and those around us. I've been thinking about it a lot, what I've learned from my parents, and decided to start sharing it with you. When I was nine years old, a teacher came to me after a school assembly and said, your dad is at the back of the room looking for you. And I shot back quick, smart, oh yeah, you've never met my dad, how do you know it's him? Not to be outsmarted by a precocious nine-year-old, she replied, it's written all over your face, you look just like him. To be fair, no nine-year-old girl wants to hear that she's the spitting image of a 44-year-old man, but I am the spitting image of my father, blue eyes, round cheeks, and that same chin. Although now I can see I have the Godfrey eyes and my mother's hands, I have always been, in one way or another, just like my dad. Recently, I've got to thinking the very tangible things that I've learned from him, maybe because of the health scares or I've been to too many funerals this year, but I've been wanting to tell people more and more where I've learned some of the core aspects of who I am come from, where I come from. And to be clear, these are my words for what I've learned from him, not his own. But when I think about everything he is and isn't, I stumble across these themes time and time again. One. Relentless optimism. I've lost count of the number of times I've observed Dad pick himself back up and continue on. When health has failed or work has been a struggle, he continued on. He was always finding new opportunities and things to push forward into. He taught me to look for opportunities at every turn, to believe that things can turn around on a dime or on a long, slow bend, but there is always hope. 2. Believe in yourself even when no one else does or should. There are no shortage of people who believe or will believe in you to a degree. But there will be times when the amount of belief you need is beyond what anyone else can give you. Whether it's pushing a creative idea beyond beyond limits of approvals or being too broke for gas when trying to crack a new deal open, my dad has taught me the power of remembering just how good you can be. And there is one incident I remember with such clarity it brings tears to my eyes even now. Dad's words were simple and to the point. Tash, look at your little finger. You've got more creativity in that little finger than the rest of us put together. Now you just need to remember that, okay? 3. Whenever you can, make someone laugh. I used to groan when Dad would make jokes with the checkout lady at the supermarket, although secretly I'd always be impressed when he could make them smile at the same old joke. He'd stop to talk to anyone he knew, and even now, I know to admire that in someone. I've learned it's a gift to easily give your time to others, and bring a little light into someone's world wherever you can. Dad taught me that you can't be too serious all the time, or you'll get out of balance, and that sometimes when things are really pretty serious, you need a good laugh more than you think. That humour of mine can get pretty dark, but I got that from him too, I think. I'll never forget the first time he talked about getting a tattoo, and his suggestion was a zipper over his bypass scar with a tag saying, in case of emergencies, open here. I used to be too serious about everything, and now probably I still am. I make plans and decisions, observations when I ought to make a joke, flutter my eyelashes and try to flirt. But Dad was right. So often it's better to laugh than to miss the chances to smile with people. 4. Everybody is a potential friend. To be fair, I learned from both my parents to welcome people with open arms, but hospitality is still a little different from making friends wherever you go. I've never seen my dad turn his nose up at anyone. 
I think I've become friends with bartenders because my dad has always been friends with the people who served him, from the local pizzeria to the mechanic or the wine merchant. And he's never polite for the sake of being polite or friendly. He'll back it up almost every time. It's genuine. 5. Never blink in the face of the unexpected. And don't ever judge. I only recently learned from Dad that he used to consider himself a bit of a homophobe. But he also told me how he came to change his mind. As usual, he'd met someone who he welcomed into his life and couldn't help but learn to love. A gay man, as a dear, dear friend. And when Bruno eventually passed from illness, it was easy to see the impact that it had on Dad. And here's the thing, I never knew that. Dad doesn't blink in the face of the unexpected, or when he's all of a sudden wrestling with something new. He just took it in his stride. There's not much that can faze me these days, and I think I learned that from him too. Number six, humiliation is disempowering to you and others. There have been plenty of opportunities when my father could have read the I told you so script to me on repeat, throwing old and new failures in front of me. Not because he was intentionally cruel, but just because that's how some people are. But not him. Dad never took an opportunity to do that, to me or others, even when he could have, and with justification. And when I faced humiliating experiences, he never dwelt on them. Rather, he helped me pick up and carry on, as far as he could. He couldn't always, but that's also a good lesson to learn. He helped brush over those humiliations to preserve my dignity in front of others. 7. If you have to do something tough and you feel bad, it's probably the right thing for the right reasons. And this was much more a direct lesson. I was sharing struggles on the phone I was having and communicating some pretty serious implications to a colleague. And I was feeling awful about the process, although I knew I needed to follow it through. And Dad said this. Someone once told me that when you have to do something tough or say something tough to another person and you feel bad about it, it's probably the right thing. And it's good that you feel bad about it because it means you really do care about the other person. He went on to talk about what it meant to make sure that the balance of power was in the right place and that I wasn't getting too big for my britches. It changed my whole week and the course of my relationship with that colleague and something that I've held on to. And in fact, it's made it easier to have tough conversations. So what's important about these lessons? They've become part of the fabric of how I do life. They are the criteria for my humanity. And my dad was very, very human. I am left with questions like, what do you do with long years of disappointment after the ones that felt like safe hiding spaces? What do you do with imperfect stories in a world that loves tidy endings? You can only continue on and recognize that we keep writing the story. Dad is finished, but I am not. And I remain, along with my sisters, the final word on what becomes of him. And therefore, I have hope. I have justifiable cause to carry on and to take the good forward. As has become my custom, I wanted to share with you some poems from my collection. Um, the first is a liturgy. Um, it's for sleeplessness. Um, as I have wrestled with sickness and also processed grief, I have found myself frequently awake in the small hours of the morning over this week. Uh, and so for you, a liturgy for sleeplessness. At the counting of the hours... 
and as the uns collect before my eyes, the undone, unsaid and unfinished things in my body, the work of my hands, the unsolved puzzles of my day. May there be rest in knowing there is always something undone, that we might sleep and rise tomorrow. The unfelt, unheard and unspoken things that haunt, swirling in the soft, shadowy edge of the mind. Not enough to wake us, but enough to jostle us from deepest slumber. Let my slumber be the safe and soft space for all that is un. To become part of tomorrow, safe for tonight, without needing my concern, my worry, my energy. For today, I have given all portions and allotments that belong to it. But for the catchment of hours left in the night before dawn, grant me abundant mercy as I wander long hours in the small darkness, awake or dreaming. Give me strength for the dawn. Satisfy even the curiosity of the deep night I find myself aware of. May the alchemy of body and mind, mystery of eyes responding to light and noise relent. To the tonic of sleep, the easy weighted fall of eyelids, the slowing rhythm of breath. I lay down into the rhythm of the hours and surrender to them, even the most unwilling parts of me. Grant me mercy and slumber and keep me there. I offer my evening prayer to the morning and ask for the unknowing knitting together of fibres, for entering the healing of deep rest, for the peace and the end of the day, done and undone, and for sleep. Pax. Continuing on a theme, I suppose, of grief and remembering, uh, this is a piece called Remember is Quicker Than Forget. I wrote it on uh, an airport concourse is where the idea was born, and I was traveling forward (laughs) and struck by a memory uh, that appeared in the form of somebody I thought I knew. And as I think about what I will remember and what I will forget, Um, Moving forward from this season, it seemed appropriate. Remember is quicker than forget on the track of a mind. You are easy to forget to think about. If I walk quickly in a forward direction. If I do not look back, I do not think to think about you. I do not write you down. I do not imagine words to shape you out of the nothing back to the mind. I do not remember to make you from memory. I would not remember to forget. I leave nothing in memoriam, but everything is left behind regardless, in nothingness. But if I stop or pause, if catching my breath on an airport concourse or at a train station, driven but not driving and left to wonder, interrupted by a red light, if I do not propel myself forward from you in every moment unceasing, then remember is quicker than forget and catches up to me. I encounter the memory of you who taps me on the shoulder. I collide with you the thought and thinking of you. Remember is so quick, forget so slow. And lastly, uh, a poem about love and what love is not. I learned conflicting things about love from my father and some of those things are strong and good and new and fresh and some of them are old and no longer useful ideas that need to be deconstructed. So this poem. Before I knew anything hard or cruel like the world is, I believed in fairy tales with one dubious eye open, 
but even then never wanted one, never thought love would look a certain height or weight or would gaze at me through eyes a certain colour, with skin a certain hue. I only hoped love would be nothing, like I had seen in a movie or read in a book. I hoped love would be a new idea. I hoped love would be an anchor, as steady as concrete or steel, and at the same time warm. I wanted a paradox of my own to explore. And I hoped love would feel strong and sound like a cheerleader, believing each of my mad genius, oversized and wonderful ideas was, in fact, wonderful. I wanted love to find me wonderful, an endless curiosity, an unending conversation. Later. The hard nature of the world taught me how I did not know, could not know, the touch or voice of love, the sound or feel of it. I spent long hours talking to the stars and the moon instead, to the curve of the earth and the rippling sea, cheeks made damp by my own oceans of salt water. My days poured out like sand a broken hourglass. I spoke aloud and asked, how could I not know the sound of love's voice after listening so long, unless I had never heard love at all? Before the universe answered, in that long, silent pause of breath that is, light reaching between two stars within my sight, that long of a breath I was left waiting, the universe still did not answer me, but a feather fell at my feet, saying, love is itself, warm and waiting, stretched from the stars to the moon, but this truth I refused, my body shaking. I climbed to my high place, stared out into the sea, and my smallest voice whispered to the silent in my silence. It occurred to me, perhaps, I knew what love should be because I knew so well what love was not. And I said to the love strung between the stars and the moon and the sea, let it be kind, strong and generous when love comes to me. I met love on a Thursday, but we did not recognise each other. I was following feathers, and by the time I did see love in kindness, strength and generosity, I had learned that when love is strong, love will probably be stubborn, and not all kindness is admirable. But there are other things that love is. Even kindness takes some getting used to. Love was busy telling me what love is and is not, and love didn't want me. I leaned in and learned the lesson anyway, what it was to listen and talk to love. And then I returned to my high place, as close to the moon as I could stand, far above the sea, and said to the universe, now I know what love feels like, looks like, sounds like. I think I must talk to it no more. And it occurred to me that silent or speaking, telling me what is and what is not, love and the universe can be much the same and the universe was still silent. This was spoken by me, Tash McGill. Thanks for listening. I hope that you'll join me again. You can find my written work online at Substack or at TashMcGill.com. Find me on social media at TashMcGill. And as always, please subscribe, rate, review. Let me know what you think. Uh, Today's episode soundtrack was composed by Anders Schilpulsen and the words spoken and written by me.